I'm Rob Skinner, and this is the Rob Skinner Podcast. Today, I'm talking to Martin Chirez. Martin and his wife, Tina, lead a Spanish-speaking ministry in Orange County, California. He's got a burning passion for growing and expanding Spanish-speaking ministries. Listen as he talks about how the U.S. has the second largest population of Spanish speakers in the world, and yet has only a handful of full-time ministers. He talks about misconceptions about Spanish ministry, why he doesn't like the term Latino ministry. He digs into immigration, politics, and helping people without legal status, and he shares his vision for Spanish ministry going forward. All this and more on the Rob Skinner Podcast. Welcome back to the Rob Skinner Podcast. My goal is to inspire you to live a no-regrets life, make this life count, and multiply disciples, leaders, and churches. The CLIMB Conference is November 30th through December 3rd in Dallas, Texas, and I want you to be there. It's going to be an amazing time, a time of encouragement, a time of friendship building, a time of inspiration, a time of equipping and teaching. It's been a challenging year. If you've been in the ministry, if you've been growing, there's all sorts of challenges facing us. That's why we need to get together. We need to learn from one another. We need to encourage one another. So it's going to be an amazing time. I'd like to ask you to please register today at robskinner.com. That's robskinner.com. If you haven't already, look for the CLIMB conference tab and book your flight. I want to, I'm looking forward to it, and I want to see you there in a couple months. Who's the most impressive disciple you know under the age of 30? Someone is really standing out for their love for God and passion to serve him. I want to talk to that man or woman. So please email me the name of the man or woman under 30 you think I should interview next on the Rob Skinner podcast. So please email me at rob at robskinner.com. That's rob at robskinner.com. Martin, welcome to the program. Thank you. Thank you for having me, Rob. How'd you become a Christian? I was invited uh, to the campus ministry in uh, 2001. Um, you know, I was already trying to read the Bible on my own, praying, looking for purpose, looking for truth. And uh, I was reached out to and, you know, had some great Bible studies with, that clarified a lot of things for me. And uh, by the grace of God, made the decision to get baptized and become a Christian. So that was 2001 in the college ministry in Long Beach. Well, how'd you meet your wife? So there in college ministry, a um, few years after I got baptized, uh, she was baptizing the teen ministry at, at a nearby region. And so she moved into the college ministry and that's where we met. Uh, we were in the same Bible talk and it was love at first sight. Mm. Uh, and so we built a friendship and soon after we we dated and we are now... And then got married, obviously. Uh, we're going to be married for 18 years uh, here in January. So, um, yeah. And, and what's her name? I'm sorry. 
Tina. Tina okay. Chaitis. Okay. How about how yeah. about kids? We have two boys, a twelve year old and a ten year old, Ezra and Noah. We have a house full of full of boys. So pray for Tina. <laughs> <laughs> That's awesome. Why'd you decide to go into the ministry? Yes. Um, you know, I think a lot of us at that point, we we just dream to do great things for God. You know, I was also never really clear or sold on what I wanted to do in my life and why I'm in college. I just knew it was the right thing. I think the core of it is I really wanted to help people. Um, I just wanted to serve people, uh, but then really felt the calling of God. And that calling came in surprising ways, not, not in ways that I was expecting. So, you know, my dream at that point was, okay, I want to be a college minister. And I was asked to go serve in the teen ministry. And I actually felt really discouraged by that. I kind of felt like, oh, I'm not believed in, you know, I'm kind of being sent to a a ministry that is not that important. You know, that's just, this is my 19 year old brain right there. <clears throat> but I really believe that I felt in love with God in deeper ways in the youth and family ministry and just clarified the calling that this is about God. This is about reconciliation of families to God. Um, along with the zeal that campus ministers and students have and so that sort of combo to me felt like i really want to pursue this and obviously the prayer then became god if this is your will um you know make make that clear and so the desire was there and i think the calling uh became clear again in in ways that i was not expecting so servitude is definitely the way uh my journey into uh, ministry. Okay, so who put you into the ministry? Like, where were you when you got into the <clears throat> full-time ministry? So, yes, I was asked to go to the teen ministry. So I, I moved out of campus ministry after my second year, and I moved into a Palos Verdes ministry, a small ministry, about 50 to 70 members, with led by Kevin and Mary Maines. Oh, nice. And so... It was in the Maine's household where I just learned so much about family, about God. Um, you know, my mom has done a phenomenal job raising me, but I, you know, she, she had the challenge of being a single mom. And so I was never really around um, complete households, if, you know, in, in that sense, uh, especially not Christian households. And so uh, that was sort of the a lot of healing that took place for me. And uh, Kevin just uh, had a vision for me um, and really believed in me. And uh, by that time, Tina was not my girlfriend yet. Uh, we were close to it and she was already a campus intern. And so that was sort of the vision. Let's make, you know, let's create a space for a youth minister and, you know, Martin and Tina can, can become that. And, and, you know, that, that came through a few months after. So, okay, let's talk, let's talk a little bit about Spanish ministry. You, yeah. you were leading traditional ministry. What, what ministry are you leading now? Maybe you can just give me a little bit of a catch up on sure. from the time you went into the ministry. What, where have you been? What have you been doing? 
Yeah, I was a youth minister, you know, what I thought was going to be a summer, right? Always wanted to come back to campus ministry, became 12 years. Wow. <laughs> and I uh, really fell in love with youth and family ministry. I was part of that generation where we transitioned from teen ministry to youth and family. And so there was a lot of adaptive changes that were, that were taking place that I thought were really, really healthy. And then around 2013, I was invited to a conference to speak uh, to college students to encourage them to go to Spanish ministry. And at the time, I just felt like, I don't know if I can do that because I myself don't want to be part of a Spanish ministry. Now, and by at this time, it wasn't called Spanish ministry. It was actually called Latin ministry. And I always felt uneasy about that, that, that term as far as the identity of a ministry, uh, to identify a whole ministry by uh, uh, ethnicity or race. I just felt like it, it's, it's, it seems a little out of place. Um, no other ministry is, is <clears throat> sort of, you know, identified by ethnicity or race. And I really love the diversity of the church. And so, you know, my wife's African-American. We're just feeling like, I don't know if I want to do that. So I was uneasy uh, about giving a, you know, a, a speech there about, hey, when you graduate, consider Latin ministry when I myself didn't want to go. <laughs> and so I prayed, I did some research and come to find out, um, whoa, the U.S. is the second largest Spanish speaking country in the world. Wow. <clears throat> and so that was an aha moment for me. Um, I remember, you know, talking to my wife and showing her the laptop and, you know, she's looking through that information and she said, a lot of people are not going to become Christians if they don't hear the message in their language. And so that was the beginning, the birth of, whoa, this is not a Latin ministry per se. This is a language-based Spanish ministry. And so, you know, had that conference go through and then an opportunity opened up to lead a Spanish ministry in the west side of LA. So we did that for for four years and, um, you know, uh, took a, took a, a, a self-made sabbatical, you could say. Uh, we moved into San Diego and I led the Tijuana border programs for Hope Worldwide full-time for a year and a half. And uh, as our, you know, the pandemic hit, our funding, you know, <clears throat> went out the door, but the program was doing really well. And Orange County Church of Christ called and, you know, kind of set me up to be able to do both Hope and Spanish ministry here in the region. And so I've been here since. Uh, so technically, I 75% employed by the Orange County Church of Christ and 25% by Hope Worldwide. I'm still the director of the Juana Border Programs. But my local ministry is the Orange County Spanish Ministry. Um, so that's a, you know, maybe 10-year journey of seeing the need for language-based ministry uh, in the U.S. And, uh, you know, I'm really excited to get into that. So you, you graduated in 2001, or you, you became a Christian in 2001, graduated Long Beach State in 2003 or so? Yeah, no, well, that's a whole other journey. Um, so I graduated from Cal State Dominguez Hills. I, I think I completed my bachelor's uh, in, 20, in 2009. So I you know, kind of took a break and kind of took that, that journey. Uh, and then uh, I got my master's at uh, Rochester University for master's in religious education in uh, 2019. I graduated with that. Um, and so those are kind of 
the educational backgrounds there. Okay, so um, it took you a while to get when, your bachelor's. You became a Christian. It took you a while, but you were doing youth and family for most of the the two thousands, and then correct. Then in two thousand twelve or so, you switched over to more of a Spanish speaking ministry in correct. LA, and then you went down to right before the pandemic and helped out on the border. And now you're in Orange mm-hmm. County. Okay, great. That helps me kind of have yeah. a feel for where you've been. It's a large area. I mean, Southern California, massive, massive area. It's not just LA. I mean, it's, yeah. it's, it's just a huge, huge area. Talk a little bit about the state of the Spanish ministry in the United States. Where are we at? What What are we looking at? You're talking to people yeah. from around the world here. Can you give a picture of where, you know, just the broad picture, where are the strong ministries, who's doing well, where, you know, where is it concentrated? What's going on? Yeah, no, that's great. I think uh, what I like to say at the beginning of these conversations is, you know, that as I mentioned earlier, the U.S. is the second largest Spanish-speaking country in the world. I mean, that just needs to sink in. There are more Spanish speakers here in the U.S. than in all Central America put together. There are more Spanish speakers in the U.S. than Spain, uh, than Colombia, than Argentina. So Mexico is number one. The U.S. is number two. Um, There are some predictions that by 2050, the U.S. may surpass Mexico and have more Spanish speakers here. And you asked, well, why is that? One of the reasons is the geographical closeness, obviously, to the Spanish-speaking countries. Two, there are younger generations or newer generations that are not ashamed to keep the language. Uh, the cultures, our cultures here are, are a lot different. And so uh, bilingual uh, people are, are welcome and, and needed. A lot of people are keeping the language because they know that in their career, they're going to, it's going to re- be a really benefit. Um, whereas in previous Spanish speaking generations, by the second or third generation, you would lose the language you're now keeping it so the u.s uh is number one with 53 million spanish speakers those are native speakers and bilingual speakers and so that makes it the number one that's our the number two spanish-speaking country in the world okay so what does that mean well every institution and every industry has now adapted to this permanent language-based market and so Uh, businesses, sports, health, law, I mean, you name it, industry, um, uh, an institution has a space, a market, a program, resources in Spanish. Well, why is that? It's obvious to these institutions and industries that people want to have the entertainment, um, you know, consume content, uh, get information in their native language or in you know in their second language so that has brought about you know kind of a a vision of wait a minute if this is what industries and institutions are doing what about what about the church and so back in 2013 when kind of had that aha moment uh, we realized that in our fellowship of churches at that time we only had nine ministers uh, devoted to spanish ministry in the entire country. Currently, you know, now 2023, a decade later, we still only have nine ministers devoted to Spanish ministry 
in our fellowship of churches. Actually, only three churches in our fellowship of churches have Spanish speaking ministers. So there's a lot of churches that have Spanish ministries, and that's great. But only three churches have ministers. Now, when you look at the strengths and values of our fellowship, we value the minister, we value the ministry couple. Uh, that has been our intentional investment of training in people. Um, and so the LA church, um, half of the regions have a minister that is full-time, uh, Boston, uh, Miami, and New York, actually, so four churches, sorry. Um, and so four of our churches in our fellowship have ministers devoted to Spanish ministry in the second largest Spanish speaking country in the world. And so that, that to me sort of paints the picture one of the need, but maybe more importantly of perhaps the new things that God is doing in this country in language based ministry. Okay. So four, four full-time Four ministries with full-time workers. Yeah, four, okay. four churches that have full-time ministers devoted to Spanish. Okay, ministry. so basically haven't even scratched the surface here in terms of reaching that community, that, that population. Correct. Okay. So when you think about, you know, communities that are in states and cities that have Spanish-speaking communities that are permanent, they're, they're going to be there, they're going to keep the language, it's going to stay those communities, those people are not coming to our churches because there's no space for them. There's no content for them. And so efforts are made to have translation, uh, but sometimes those translations, when they are permanent, longstanding, that's not a pleasant, um, welcoming, that's not a formative practice for those those people. And so they end up not not sticking around. Right. Um, so when you look at churches like San Diego, all the churches in Central and Northern California, the states of Arizona, Nevada, Texas, uh, there is no minister devoted to Spanish ministry in these states. Now, I say that not with an intent of critique, uh, just to make us aware of the opportunity that yeah, is at hand. Exactly. Uh, and okay, so this whole topic of of Spanish ministry, it, it starts to bleed over into uh, politics. It, it's a hot topic in terms of election cycles, you know, the wall, immigration, people, sure. you know, on, on the border. Just a, as a disciple and as a leader, how do, you, how do you take that? Okay, like, just talk to me about how you um, navigate that, that whole concept. I mean, it's we've got a huge population here. There's a lot of, a lot of heat about this whole immigration issue, people coming from central South America and other countries. Yeah. Help us out here. Yeah, no, that's great. And you know, that is in a, in a personal sense, that's probably been the most difficult thing. You know, I'm, I love our church. I want us to do well. Uh, in the last decade, I've spent much of my time persuading churches and leaders to make space for people like me, uh, people like my parents. Um, and so there, there's an emotional exhaustion 
from that in trying to explain these details. So, but I appreciate the question because I think it's there's elephants in the room that need to be addressed. And I really believe that Christians do well when we have the right information. Mm-hmm. Um, so when it comes to the immigration, you know, it's a matter of our theology in some sense, right? Um, the caring for the foreigner, uh, the immigrant, is the second most quoted command in the Old Testament next to loving God. Mm. Uh, and so there is an awareness uh, of God's people about the foreigner that are not viewed uh, as threats. They're not viewed as invaders. They're not viewed as takers, but they are viewed as equal parts of the community. Uh, there's a whole festival that is commanded by God to God's people, uh, Sukkot, uh, where they have to actually live in tents for seven days to remember that they too were foreigners. And so uh, God's people are always aware and conscious of the immigration journey, you know, the, the, the restoration plan for the world uh, begins with God calling Abraham to do what? To leave his country and go to another place. Uh, I think all of us we can track a major move that we made, a major physical move that we made or our parents made before we came to salvation. We either move cities, we move countries, or our parents move cities or move countries that led to salvation. So if we step back from the political theater, uh, we can see the God who is at work through the migration of people from Abraham to now. So that can change our perspective. I think another thing, and we can, you know, kind of get into that, but just to add something else. um, I think that was something that you brought up at the lesson that I remember you you talked about how Abraham, Abraham was an immigrant. He was, you know, he emigrated from uh, Aramea into, into the promised land. So that, that was was just, you know, I hadn't, hadn't really thought about that in that context. Right. Yes. And so, you know, and there's more. I mean, you look at the work of Luke in the Gospel of Luke and Acts, and you see the work of the Holy Spirit, the activity of the Holy Spirit of moving God's people crossing borders. And so the Samaritan, uh, the good Samaritan, well, that happens at a border, Um, you know. um, And so then you have the church being called into Europe. Uh, and so in Acts 15, uh, Paul has a vision, and he, you know, by a man who says, come, come and help us. And so they enter uh, Europe for the first time. They find themselves in Philippi. There is no synagogue there. They go to a place of prayer. And who does God open? Whose heart does God open? Lydia. Um, it tells you where she's from. She's actually not from Philippi. She's an immigrant. <laughs> she's a Gentile woman. Um And so God is doing new things. And so you see the work of God moving God's people and moving people so that they can have an encounter and receive salvation. And so that to me is part of the conversation. Uh, When we just focus on laws, then it can get complicated. You know, in short, our immigration system hasn't been able to solve these challenges and issues the church is not going to (laughs) that's not our role that's not our part uh if if our system can't figure it out 
why can the church figure it out? I think the other thing is there are some misconceptions about the people that are crossing the border. Obviously, there's certain narratives, which I think we have to really be careful if people are being depicted not as human, not as image bearers of God, uh, and we follow with that narrative. And so, you know, we work at the border and we encounter a lot of people. Most of the people don't want to leave their country. They don't want to leave their place. They're forced. Um, but anyway, you know, I think the other the other part is a lot of the people that are able to enter the country, uh, there is, you know, uh, a legal assessment into their asylum seeking process and all of that. Um, so there's a way to have that conversation with God at the center and with God's picture and the church focus on the church's vocation. Um, now, the other thing is a lot of us are U.S. citizens and we prefer the Spanish language. And so there is that part as well, that the Spanish ministry is not only an immigrant ministry, but it's a mixture. And sometimes you have family members that whose status hasn't been worked out yet. They've been waiting. Uh, I myself came to this country when I was nine years old. I was brought to this country. I started my legal process at the age of 19 as a Christian, obviously very aware to have conviction and be righteous and be honest. My immigration process took 17 years. Wow. I became a permanent resident four years ago. Wow. Uh, I'm 41 now. Uh, and so the legal process is slow. It's inconsistent. It's, it depends on how the economy is doing. So there's all these other perspectives that we need to be aware of. Um, and so, you know, um, anyway, I'll, I'll, I'll land there because that's right. a lot. Okay. So <laughs> here, here, this is what I'm hearing. Basic, what I, what I hear and what I heard in, in the springtime is essentially the government's has a huge problem on their hands. I mean, it's a big issue. It's been, and it's been an issue for centuries. I mean, this is a a country built on immigration built around. I mean, it's filled with immigrants from the very beginning. That's not going to be solved probably anytime soon. There's probably no solution that's going to be decisive or final coming up in the future. So in the meantime, as disciples, we need to just take care of the people that are coming across and not vilify them, but essentially just meet their needs. And yeah. the government's going to have to do what they have to do. But in the meantime, we can't ignore the issue of the people coming into the country. Correct. Correct. And so, um, and this again, if we only view Spanish ministry with, well, what about the immigration situation? we're already starting off at the wrong, at the wrong spot. You know, I think that's is why I, where I start, Hey, this is the second largest Spanish speaking country in the world and people want to engage in their own language. And so I think the churches in the U S um, are being called to be bilingual churches. Uh, what what is, what does that mean? Each space can have, has its own resources. It can have its own model but these are principles and values similar to the youth and family ministry vision days where it was starting off, you know, it's like, Hey, here's 15 to 20 principles. You may not have all the resources, but here are values and goals that go along helping families 
connect and not separating the youth ministry from the parents, but working. So those were all values based, principles based. And I think that's where I think we need to start exploring um, what is it, what can it look like for our local church to create a space for the Spanish dominant speaker so that anyone in our community, our family, our neighbors, we can invite to church and there's a place for them okay. without that kind of creativity a lot of our spanish-speaking friends and family members and neighbors are not being invited to church in a lot of places because there's no place right for them there's no solution there so what are like when you look out on, on the churches in our in our family churches what are some common misconceptions you see about spanish ministry like what what's what's holding it back what are the bottlenecks uh, yeah, there, there's there's about ten of them. Um, <laughs> okay. uh, one of them you already mentioned, right? Kind of the hey, what about their legal status? Which you know, again, I think that's a whole ongoing conversation. But I think we cover some of those theological dynamics. Uh, I think another one is well, their children speak English. Their children want to speak English, so why not just bring them over? Um, and so typically that kind of decision is not made by a bilingual family. <laughs> uh, that kind of concept is, is drawn up by a monolingual person or family. The reality is that children whose first language is English, but their parents are first language is Spanish. So the children's second language is Spanish. They live in that bilingual world and they actually do fine. And it's actually really healthy. And so that's one of the misconceptions. Well, the children don't want to be there. The children don't speak the language. No, that's that's their day in and day out life. Uh, that's interacting with grandma. That's going to school, friends, neighbors. And so that's one misconception. Um, I think the other is that, you know, shouldn't they just learn English if they're in this country? It's going to help them with their job. It's going to help them with their future. Some of that makes sense, but that does not mean that you, you know, you, you're going to engage spiritually in that way. So most Spanish speakers in this country um, or the dominant Spanish speakers in this country, they're somewhat bilingual. They're what I call, they speak working English enough to get by. But when it comes to church, when it comes to being human, when it comes to being in relationship with God, when it comes to worship, confession, prayer, preaching, sermons, you're going to choose your native language. And so we can see back to the gospel or back to the, the, the work of Luke in Acts chapter 2. Um, people from all over the world are there. Uh, the Spirit comes upon the apostles. They begin to speak. And people's response is, we hear you declaring the wonders of God in our native language. Wow. So what does that tell us? It was important for the Holy Spirit to preach and announce the full salvation in people's native language. Right. And so the Holy Spirit did not call them to assimilate into uh, Aramaic. He didn't call them to assimilate into whatever you know language was dominant at the, at the city there. In fact, it's the spirit that adapts to what, what the language that people speak. Mm. 
So that's one of the misconceptions. Shouldn't they learn English according to the Holy Spirit? No, <laughs> according to the Holy Spirit, the Holy Spirit wants to speak their native language. And so if the church's stance is, well, they should learn English, um, then we're not participating, I think, faithfully to the Holy Spirit's values. Because if the Holy Spirit chooses to speak their native language, then the church who wants to be led and in step with the Spirit should speak the native language. So that's another another uh, misconception. The third here, and I'll just I'll leave it at that, and we can maybe uh, I'll land here, um, is that, you know, sometimes Spanish ministries get really frustrated. A lot of the volunteer leaders, there's major burnout. You know, they've been creating content, preaching, working full time. Uh, often they're not represented in decision-making circles or processes there's a lack of representation of people that are bilingual are culturally aware and so a lot of times decisions are made without the uh, cultural sensitivity inclusion of spanish ministries and so there's a lot of frustration and so a lot of those volunteer leaders at times you know can have difficult conversations with with their leader and those conversations at time have gone out of hand uh, but when does that not happen? That happens in every ministry right. uh, where people that have tensions, a lot of another challenge that can happen with that lack of representation and, you know, the volunteer sort of burnout um, is that, you know, uh, the, the Spanish ministry without a minister begins to become kind of an isolated ministry. There's challenges, there's issues like in every ministry. And a lot of times the minister or the elder comes when there's a big, big, major problem. And so for staff, eldership, you know, leadership, a lot of times their only experience is when there was problems. There was no visits prior. There was no encouragement prior. There was no resources prior. There was no coming to preach prior. But, oh, my only experience is when there was a major crisis and an issue. And then that narrative becomes, ah, uh, you know, Spanish ministries can be very problematic. We had a big problem with ours. So I think Spanish ministry is one of the only ministries that has a stigma to be a problematic ministry when the reality, tell me which ministry doesn't have problems. Right, right. <laughs> but no ministry is labeled like the campus ministry. If it has challenges, it's not labeled like uh, it's a problematic ministry. The singles, you know, you name it. But a lot of times the Spanish ministry is labeled in that way. And I, I don't think that's fair and that's not right. Um, and so it doesn't have vision because now there's a sort of caution and uh, fear or concern. And so when that's your motivation, <laughs> um, you're not going to build vision into it. And so Spanish ministries need the opposite. They need the vision, the presence, the shepherding, the encouragement of the evangelist, the eldership. Uh, they, they need to be included in decision-making process, uh, be viewed immediately and intentionally as an equal part of the church, mm. not as a side ministry. So those are some of the the bottlenecks and challenges that I think we need to kind of reframe right. Spanish. And and I've heard some of those things like, you know, the Spanish ministry is a lot of drama involved, but when you say that, that makes sense. You know, if it's not giving 
any attention, then it seems like a drama-free ministry. But then when you start giving it attention, then, of course, problems are going to surface. And probably the only thing that gains attention is serious drama that can't be handled where you need it. So that becomes the focal point. So that makes a lot of sense. Right. When you spoke at the Pacific Southwest Conference, it, it was powerful. I mean, there was, there was a lot of passion. There was a lot of emotion. And I, I, could, I could sense there was a lot going on underneath the surf. There was an intensity there. Can you talk a little bit about that? Where does that come from? It's urgency. Our friends, our neighbors, our relatives are not, are not hearing the message of God in their native language. Um, this is a salvation uh, matter. Uh, and so I think that that's part of where that passion uh, comes from. Um, it's, it's about God. It, it's about salvation. It, it's about what God is doing. Um, the Spanish, the U.S. being the second largest Spanish-speaking country is not a problem. That is a work of God. Um, and, and God is, is doing things that the church needs to adapt to. And I think a lot of times we want God to adapt to what the church wants. Uh, and I think that, you know, part of that message was, listen, church, we need to adapt to what God is doing uh, rather than, you know, have God adapt to what, what the church wants to do. And so, you know, yes, the purpose is we need Spanish ministries in the U.S., but it's also something bigger about our, our lack at times of awareness uh, of what God is doing. Um, and I think the other part is it's obviously very, very personal um, because, you know, it's a decade now of trying to persuade uh, the church that wants to make disciples to make room <laughs> to make more disciples. And so there is, there is that sort of frustration uh, that is, that is there. Um, and so, you know, that all of that is, it, it, for me, it's the intersection of, of Spanish ministry. Again, we talked about the misconceptions about immigration and, and, and different things like that. And so I want people to know God. Uh, I want the church to be faithful to what God is doing. Uh, I want us to be relevant. Uh, I want there to be space for every person in our community. Um, and so that's a lot of where that, that passion and urgency comes from. And, and here's the other thing. I think a lot of our, the resources that we need are already in the church. And so when you look at our campus ministries, more than half of those campus students, the entire country, they're bilingual. So they are what I call Moses, Nehemiahs, Pauls, that are able to step into one culture and speak that language and make the connection with the other culture. And so Moses was able to step into the courts of Pharaoh and into, you know, the barrios of the, <laughs> of the Hebrew people. And so was able to make those connections. Mm -hmm. Nehemiah was able to go from one court, you know, to the repairing of the wall. And so 
Paul the same. He knew when he was a Pharisee of Pharisees, and he knew when he was a Roman citizen. And so, uh, you know, there's that embracing who you are, and that you can be a bridge to serve God, to serve people, and to strengthen and encourage the church. And so that passion also comes from, don't we see that the resources that we need are already are already here? And I think a lot of times young men and women that are bilingual, um, because there's not a visible vision for be a, a minister in Spanish ministry, a lot of these young men and women, uh, for, you know, generation after generation, they could have been great Spanish ministers, uh, but because there wasn't, there wasn't no pathway to that, uh, there was no clarity to that, they chose careers, uh, which is okay, that's great, but they could have been great ministers. And so that, that sense of urgency is there that, hey, our, the resources of building these ministries is here. And so all of that sort of plays mm. in sermons like that. Okay. So that's, you've been really, I can tell that, you know, you, you're talking about, you've been persuading, trying to work it. What, what, what are some, some of the obstacles you're facing? What are the some common arguments that you're wrestling with? What, what's causing the frustration? Like what, with, of course, without naming names, what are, what are some of the, the roadblocks that you're running into. Yeah, I think I think you know when when evangelists hear messages like this, they're evangelists. They're moved. They're convicted. Um, I think the challenge is that sometimes that heart of the evangelist, then a few weeks later, they're functioning as administrators. No, no, no shot to the administrators. We need those. But meaning that the evangelists will look at the church and say, well, who needs Spanish ministry? And five people are there. And it's like, I'm not going to build a ministry for five people. Mm. That is what I call, uh, you know, the evangelist being an administrator. Mm -hmm. The mindset of an evangelist is who in my city, who in this city is not coming to church because of language? That's not five people. That's thousands of thousands of thousands of people and so i think that is that is one of the bottlenecks that is one of the challenges that is one of the frustrations and this is not a knock or you know uh, on, on evangelists i think they're overworked <laughs> um i think they're focusing a lot on other different things and not on the well-being of the church right and so that you know you're convicted but three days later three weeks later you're in so many different meetings right that it doesn't make the list. Right. Uh, and then I think another challenge is that in decision-making circles, in the decision-makers, a lot of those uh, groups and processes don't lack representation of people like me. Um, and so if there is no Moses-like, Nehemiah-like, Paul-like that can speak to both cultures and language and inform then you're going to be overlooked. Decisions are going to be made that don't include the well-being of the health and the present, the future of Spanish, Spanish ministries. And I think a few, not a lot, but there's a few that the immigration conversation is too overwhelming. Uh, they don't want to have it with their with their church, 
And if there's a faithful, longstanding brother or sister that, you know, is really hesitant about Spanish ministry because of an unhealthy theology of immigration, then I've, I, you know, I've seen where some of those ministers just won't have the conversation because it's going to ruffle feathers. It's too much. It's too much okay. of an issue. Now, so let, let, let's just camp out there because I yeah. mean, we're not going to be able to cover all of the issues there in this conversation, unfortunately, but okay. So what I, what I hear you saying is three things. First of all, people not what you say, not having an evangelist mindset, essentially the evangelist is not like lit, kind of imagining by faith, not the people that are in his church, but the people that could be in his church, that he's not counting those people as a relevant factor in his decision-making. So it's like, okay, why build something that's not even there? So essentially the evangelist needs to have a vision, not for what's there, but what could be there. What, what's the potential? And he gets, he gets locked into the nuts and bolts of, okay, this is what's happening in my church he's not thinking beyond the borders. Secondly, he said, um, not enough representation. There's not enough Spanish speakers or at least bilingual people who are speaking up for those who are either not in the church or who are in the church but need more help within the church. And then the third thing is, is this immigration issue. Let's just talk a little bit about that. What do you say to a person who says, hey, Martin, they're not even elite. They're not even legal. You know, if they're going to become Christians, they're going to need to get right with the law. And so how can they become Christians? Let's just talk. How do you tackle that issue? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, um, what I've learned is I just need to share my story, right? If that's the mindset, hey, you're breaking Romans 13. Uh, Then my immigration case was 17 years. Six of those years, I was one decision away from being deported. What was my crime? My mom crossed the border, you know, uh, brought me to, to the U.S. when I was nine years old. So immigration is the only law where you're penalized as a minor. Every other law, if you commit a crime as a minor, it's fine. So immigration is the only law. And so with that mindset that there's no way I could be part of the church, and then it makes no sense. Am I not able to be part of the church and be baptized and be a minister if my documentation isn't complete. I mean, there is no consistency. You know, currently there is no pathway to citizenship. It doesn't exist. And so people think, oh, are you, but you're doing it legally. It doesn't exist. There is no pathway. And so I think if disciples understand this, if decision-making groups understand this, they'll say, wait a minute, what do you mean there is no pathway to citizenship? I mean, you can marry a U.S. citizen, but even there, you're able to become a, a resident and a citizen only if you overstayed your visa. But if you came as a child, that doesn't qualify. And so my, my wife is a U.S. citizen. She wasn't able to petition me because I came as a minor. Now, I could have lied, but I'm a disciple. I'm being honest and risking our entire future. And then to have conversations with disciples that are like, well, it's so hurtful because I'm like, I'm actually being righteous. Mm. <laughs> I'm actually doing this. And so, you know, no, no disciple is hiding them not being documented. It is a struggle. It is a tension. There is pain of separation that a lot of them, you know, are their children are here. Um, they're not being deported because there is 
a small space of mercy within the system that it's like, well, you don't seem like you're causing any problems. You shouldn't be deported, but there's also no pathway for citizenship. So what the law says, in fact, this is what a judge said to me in one of my court hearings is, son, we just simply don't know what to do with people like you. You know, I had letters from the church. I'm sitting in court. Uh, you know, my son is now one years old. We don't know what's going to happen. Um, and there was no pathway for me to become a citizen, even though I've been married by then by for eight years. <clears throat> but there's also no reason to to deport me. So what does the system do? We don't know what to do with you. Now, the solution is simple. Let's create a pathway for citizenship for people that are, you know, great citizens, you, you're going to be thoroughly pr processed. So there's no crime and all that. But what's the issue? Well, this is where we get into the polit political theater. Uh, what does it mean if you give citizenship <laughs> to thousands and thousands and thousands of people like me? Well, now there's voting power. Like, and so uh, there's, so this is, a, this is, this is a, an empire system um, of scarcity uh, mentality, but the kingdom of God is a space of abundance and of welcome. And so our values are, are different. So I share my story rather than try to persuade politics. Here's what I went through and here's how I process it with God. And here's what my brothers and sisters and relatives are going through. Um, and so, you know, there's an educational piece there of no human being is illegal. There's documented and undocumented. There is no pathway to citizenship. So there's an educational process. And again, I think if disciples that are kind of hardline in, ah, uh, no, this is wrong. If they were just to study, you know, the narratives in scripture, the history of the immigration laws and hear stories their hearts would change and i think they would be way better christians mm -hmm. for it because now they're empathetic and aware of what god is doing all around them mm. um so i share my story <laughs> <laughs> that's awesome thank you it, it's i mean it's a it's certainly a sense sensitive issue it is when you talk about the decision makers not being representative representative i um I sent one of my Spanish speaking leaders, Angel Armenta, to the conference that you were part yeah. of or helped organize. Can you talk a little bit about that? Why you had it, what you guys talked about, and what you came away with? Well, first of all, I appreciate, you know, your support. I mean, that means so much. We had, you know, him and others were um sent there by their ministry leader you know, expenses paid. And that's just a sign of we value, we see you. We don't have all the resources to have a minister, but we're on our way. And so I really, I do want to, you know, take this time to thank you for that and your awareness, your response, even to that sermon, our conversations, uh, and, you know, the, the, the Spanish mystery there in, in Tucson. So I, I appreciate that. Um, so the conference, you know, one of the major points that we talked about is again this vision god is doing something um let's let's all make sure we're on the same page and then you know this is a space also for self-critique uh for the spanish ministries one of our challenge has been that quite a handful of people 
uh, in my opinion, have been stubbornly holding on to the term Latino ministry. <clears throat> so that was one of the things we talked about. Hey, we got to let that terminology go. I think it's harmful when you identify a ministry by ethnicity and race. And here's what I mean. If I'm a Spanish speaker in your church and I go to you and I say, hey, we need a Latino ministry. You're like, wait a minute, what? <laughs> There's a lot of Latinos in my church that are not Spanish speakers. Um, what do you mean Latino? Are we going to have an African-American church? Are we going to have an Asian-American church? God is calling us to diversity. God is calling us. And so that terminology becomes harmful. Now, you know, I think we've 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 turned the corner there uh and so we addressed that and said hey we're no longer identified as latino ministries but we're identified as spanish-speaking ministries language-based mm -hmm. uh, because we also have a lot of people coming into our ministries that are not latino um and so it's it's it becomes really really healthy so we talked about that we talked about also how can we have an ongoing connection and so we created what we call uh, mesa abierta open table where every two months we get together on a zoom call and just keep the relationships going exchange resources get some time to prayer um, just the fellowship going and so i think one of our visions is that we become uh, an identity in our uh, we have an identity in our fellowship of churches in the u.s just like we have the youth and family identity, just like we have the campus ministry identity, we want to have a Spanish ministry identity. And so those were some of the conversations and themes. And the fellowship was just rich. I, know. I mean, so many people were just crying because, you know, they're grinding it day in, day out in a small church just as volunteers. And so to see other people that are going through the same things, to see that, you know, wow, there are ministers for Spanish mystery. There is a vision. Uh, I mean, it was a lot of, a lot of, a lot of tears. It was a very healing and inspiring time. It was, I saw pictures and Angel and Gabby came back and they were so fired up and encouraged. We've been really excited in Tucson. Right prior to that, you know, the Pacific Southwest conference, we'd started having um, angels speaking probably every other Sunday. We have another brother named Jose Luis Palacios, and he's been supporting the Armentas, uh, him and his wife, he and his wife, um, Rosario. But it's been great. And, and now we're starting to have a separate, we, you know, we have communion together and then they break off and angel or Jose will preach a sermon on Sunday. And then even having guest speakers coming in, a, a person named, I think his name is Josualdo is going to come yep. down and speak to our ministry right. and the Phoenix disciples who speak Spanish are going to come down and, and did that. I think um, a couple months ago with a, with a brother from Tijuana, but yeah. let's just talk a little bit about what's, what's your vision for Spanish ministry. Let's just say you became the king of the world and all of a sudden everyone <laughs> just does exactly what Martin says about Spanish ministry in in our churches like what what's your vision for what would you like to see happen i think that for you know congregations that are over 300 members that they hire a minister for spanish ministry um 
I think you got to have the church leader, you got to have the campus leader, and you got to have a Spanish ministry leader. That's just the context uh, uh, that we're in, and it's here to stay. Um, I think for smaller churches with a smaller budget, uh, to be intentional, to treat this ministry um, just as you would treat the campus ministry. And so a church leader of a church of under 100 or so, 120 or, you know, all that, um, is involved in many ministries, right? They lead the church, but you're trying to build up the campus. You're trying to, you know, get the singles going and things like that. For, for the Spanish ministry to be treated in that way and not just left alone, but that the, that the church leader embraces the responsibility of the well-being, the development, and the formation of this language-based ministry. Mm. That we have in our convictions that we need to have space for the English speakers and the Spanish speakers. Um, and that we are giving opportunities and vision to the bilingual younger next generation uh, to see themselves serving as you know, bridge makers uh, in between Spanish and English ministries. And so one of the models that I love is similar to, I think what you have is one facility and then you, you're together and then you have separate sermons, language-based. But before church, a little bit during church and after church, you are connecting. Um, and I think that model is healthy. That model is important because then you can invite anyone from your neighborhood because the church has space for them. And so if a church has a vision of one church, two languages, and we have a clear model that honors that vision, um, we have intentional investment for that vision and that model, then you have from the grandkid to the grandma uh, in one church. Uh, growing in Christ. And so it's that simple. It's that simple of, of, of this is the vision. And so you can summarize it to that one church, two languages, and the church leader, the church eldership, the decision-making groups to be committed, invested, and intentional of giving this ministry what it needs, what it deserves. Right. That's that's great. Okay, so let's talk about that. I love that idea. One church, two languages. How do you keep ministries unified? This is a this is a some, something I've heard sure. over the years. It's hard to stay unified with two different ministries going on. What's your answer yeah. to that? Yeah, I think and, and and you know, there's a couple of cases there that you know I've looked into, and the challenge again is when the leader of the Spanish ministry is just sort of left alone. Uh, and so the church leader doesn't see it himself. They don't see themselves as overseers in the day in, day out of that ministry. So that creates a gap. And so I think a lot of the times it's easy to say, well, they kind of just do their own thing. Um, no ministry does their own thing if the minister's involved, to, to be honest. Uh, and so that's one way. How do we keep them together? That again, we, we have this clear vision. So, um, However, we plan out our calendar, however, we make decisions that, you know, these these parallel groups 
uh, are being led, being informed, being connected. Um, and I think there's got to be a way, or sorry, and I think the uh, English ministries need to be giving all of this information that we talked about. I think if the rest of the church hears, oh, second language, second language, largest Spanish-speaking country in the world, you know, the value of language of the Holy Spirit. I mean, kind of that that, that, that whole sermon that I've been preaching for like 10 years. Um, I think the church, if they get that, they'll embrace that. You know, I think a lot of times we have comments from people from the English ministry to say, well, the Latinos are always over there. We say, okay, let's not use that terminology for this ministry, the Spanish ministry. And so again, educating the entire church so that the the burden is not just on the leadership. I've been mentioning them a lot, but that the the ownership is on the entire church. That we have true care and ownership for for one another. And so, this is part of you know having a clear identity of the church, uh, one church, two language. And so, there's an intentionality to keep that narrative going. Mm -hmm. One thing that I think it's important is to have public bilingual um services maybe two or three a year where as a church we say here we celebrate language and so you know if every time you're together there's just translation uh, that communicates something it communicates that one language is superior than the other but if you intentionally have public bilingual services, the songs, the welcome, the sermon, it's a little bit more work, but we value it. So we're going to invest in that. And so if you have, you know, those, um, I think they go a long way in forming that unity in that identity. Uh, and then eventually, you know, for the Spanish ministry to have people that have responsibilities for like the other ministry who are your church your children's ministry coordinators uh here's the bible talk leaders retreat i mean all of that you know equal parts invested uh connected um i think it's doable that's a fantastic idea okay I mean, I'm really torn right now because I want to just ask you a million questions about my particular <laughs> my particular ministry. I'm going to ask you a couple, but one of them, okay, here's here's the big one that I'm wrestling with, and I, I think speaking from a small church leadership, we've got around 100 people in our church. How do you work around the financial challenges? I mean, sure. I, I love Angel, and he's an amazing guy, and I, I feel for him because the guy is working his behind yeah. off just on his job five days a week. He's raising a great family. He's got a great wife. Um, but he's, he's doing it self-supporting. Now I've done that before, you know, eight years in, in Oregon, self-supporting. It's tough. I mean, it's, it's yeah. really hard. And I, I look at him and I go, man, I, I know what that's like. I know how tough that is. How do, you know, how, how to, how do we work towards support? Because when I think about that ministry, I go, that's not where the money's coming from, from the sure. Spanish ministry. Yeah. Yeah. So, you know, maybe to unpack that here a little bit, it is one of the elephants in the room as well, right? That it's, it's, it has the stigma of not being a financially generous ministry. Um, and I think it's easy to kind of just say that. But again, if you look historically how this ministry has been developed, how it's been included, how it's been trained, well, 
you know, that's kind of a result of not being having the personal touch and involvement of the minister. It's similar to the analogy or the stories of when the minister or elders get involved when something bad happens, right. um, you know? And so if it's not included and involved, then people don't feel like they have their, you know, that they have ownership here, uh, that they're invested. They're not stakeholders. You know, I don't like that word, but that's to give you, and so, but there's a way to make that change when it's genuinely an equal English and Spanish mm-hmm. ministry. Now we need to be realistic, right? In a church of a hundred and growing, and you know, it's hard to have a minister right away. But I think, okay, if so, where does the Spanish minister, Spanish ministry minister, rank in the value system of that church? And so, to be able to name it. Uh, to be able to have a clear plan and a vision, it's it's great. Now, a lot of our groups that are in these smaller churches may not ever get to a place financially where they can have a minister. I think that's okay. Not every ministry is going to have a minister. Now, if you're in a bigger church, congregation, bigger city, that's something else. I'm talking about kind of smaller city, smaller churches. And so there is a way of, okay, what is the rhythm of life and the health of this ministry and these volunteer leaders? Um, you know, and so there's ways, I guess what I'm saying is to just kind of clarify that long-term plan and an assessment of where we're at, what's realistic, right? Uh, being those principles and values. I, I do want to mention this when it comes to finances. A lot of our brothers and sisters in Spanish ministries, there is an injury that they have there of, okay, I've been a Christian for 20 years, 30 years. And I've seen people come from Latin America and be thanked and praised. And we have bilingual services, but I've been here 25 years, 36 years. And some people still don't know my name. Mm. (laughs) Uh, Or, you know, the minister that was here prior didn't really take care of us. And he gave a bad report on his way out. Uh, so there are some relational issues that need to be right. sort of restored. And right. then you have special missions, right? Where you see so much funding go out into the Latin American Spanish speaking world, but then there's no resources uh, for the local Spanish ministry. And I think that can create a scarcity mentality in the Spanish ministry. Right, right. Where you say, well, I'm not going to give because you're not even really giving me and that's that's a spiritual issue i mean that's real pain that's real but so that needs to be that needs to be addressed um you know both uh lament the fact that okay there has been if 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 there's been neglect let's call it that um but that doesn't mean we no longer engage in these principles of of generosity how can we we solve that but again this this needs pastoral work right uh without that pastoral touch that minister touch a lot of these situations stay um permanent and stuck and so you have oh you know you can look at the spanish mission and say well it's not a generous group the reality is there's just deeper issues that are relational injuries mm. within within the church and i think when those are attended to there could be a, 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 re, a renewed vision uh, there. Okay. 
gosh, there's so much to talk about. I, one of the things that, that I've, I've, I was talking to Javier Amaya in our last conversation when I interviewed him. He talked about his vision to plant churches, Spanish churches in the United States. And I thought yeah. that's a great idea. I mean, like Tucson, yeah. I think the demographics are at least 45% are Hispanic. It could be, it's probably more, it's probably underreported. And I think Angel is telling me that 20% speak only Spanish in Tucson. I mean, it's, it's, we're, we're close to the border. I think we're like 90 miles from the border. Yeah. So there's a, a big, big population. What, what, what are your thoughts about, you know, dom- no, I, domestic I think, plantings I, here? Yeah, that, that's great. It's, you know, I think one of the challenges, is it going to be misunderstood, right? As well, you're doing your own thing. Um, and I think this is what makes some of the ministers in Spanish ministry a little gun shy because it's, it just takes one comment where it's hinted that you're kind of doing your own thing uh, to be like, Whoa, I don't want to create that. So I'd rather not take risk or try new things or, uh, but I appreciate uh, the vision there that, that Javier laid out. I, I think why not? Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I think we're at a place where we need to try new things. Right. I agree. Uh, and we need to explore and be okay with that. Um, and so, you know, when you look at central California, for example, um, man, what a place to plant churches. Right. Spanish. Right. Um, and, uh, you know, again, this is where we need the campus ministers to understand this purpose and this vision right. and to be able to transmit that to their campus ministry so that post-campus ministry, there is an opportunity where you can take your language, you can take your culture, you can take your faith, your Christianity, and invest it uh, in areas and, and you know, in cities that we, we, we really need it. Right. Okay, let, there's a lot of people with just a, you know, what, what do you tell the, the church in, you know, Spokane, Washington or something or, or, or some other smaller place? Lots of whites. Sure. A, a couple, a few blacks and, and just a few Hispanics. And they're like, how do I apply this? Or what do I do in this situation? That's not, I mean, I, I'm Southern California. What is it? Is it more than 50% are Hispanic? I don't know. Yeah. What are the demographics? Yeah, that's, that sounds about right. You know, it's interesting. We have a Spanish ministry in Minnesota. Um, and so because of the lack of work in some of these, or the labor shortage, a lot of Spanish-speaking families have been moving into communities and places uh, where historically there hasn't been a presence. And again, when, you know, the Spanish-speaking communities, when they move for work, they, they, you know, they establish their own community, they establish their own market, they establish, you know, they keep the language. Uh, and so there are a lot of places, you know, Georgia is in huge need of Spanish ministry, Virginia, <laughs> um, Baltimore, uh, you know, and so there's definitely, you know, Indiana, these are places that we typically don't think about. But again, this is the second largest Spanish speaking country in the world. And Spanish speaking communities have a great uh, you know, uh, ethnic uh, work, uh, you know, um, mentality. And so you move to the places that give you opportunity um, because you want to, 
You want to make a better future for yourself and for your family. So I would say to those people, make walk through the city, make an assessment, you know, asking the questions with God at the center. Okay, what is God doing here? Who are the new people that are moving in? Um, who are the new neighbors? Uh, what does it mean to love my neighbor if my neighbor demographic is changing? Right. Uh, is this the work? Is this the work of God? What is God up to here? Who is God calling me, my family group, our church to be in light of the demographic changes? Again, I think we have to have a Christianity that is aware and discerning our location. Mm -hmm. uh, and so, yes, there's going to be cities where the Spanish speaking population is very low, you know, you're not necessarily going to build a Spanish ministry for that. But there are other cities that, hey, the neighborhood has changed. Exactly. Community has changed. Can we be a church that adapts to those changes, right? If a Spanish speaking person, a bilingual person comes to the church, can they can they envision their can they see themselves belonging here? Can they see themselves bringing their aunts, their uncles? Um, you know, uh, we need to create that. Mm. Uh, and so how can we create a space that is a little bit ahead of what God is doing? Yeah. Right? We're preparing for the harvest. We're preparing for the things. And so let's start working on bilingual songs. Let's yeah. start working on on these things in preparation for right. the things that God is doing. I think a lot of times God works in the city first and then in the church. Yeah, I know. <laughs> uh, it, it, it's it's so I've been praying a long time that at the University of Arizona convert some amazing young bilingual leaders, future leaders. Yesterday I was in a study with a young man who my campus minister, Cole Gordon, reached out to and um he's just just I mean an amazing young man. And he has such an interesting story because He's from Nogales, Sonora, Mexico, just across the border. That's where he grew oh. up, and it's where his family is now. And he would commute across the border to go to school at a Catholic school in Nogales, Arizona. And that's where yeah. he met his girlfriend, and she lives in Mexico as well. And anyway, they, they came to church um, last Sunday, loved it, really, mm -hmm. really loved it. Of course, they're you know absolutely fluent in both languages, but just so receptive. And I just go, this is awesome. And I told Angel about it. I'm like, Angel, you got to get involved here. This is an, a, just a super yeah. guy, just wide open. And just gave me a, a real vision for what could happen in the future. What, let me just, yeah. let's, you know, I could talk can to I, you. Can I, add one, can I add one quick sure, thing Sure, go that? ahead, sure. You know, again, a lot of times, unfortunately, the conversation of Spanish ministry begins with the deficiencies. But I think there's so much, richness in these ministries, right? There's so much to learn about God through immigration journey, all that. But I think one of the things that it's common in Spanish speaking cultures is that it's a faithful community. Um, you grew up with, with God at the center of the house, usually typically led by grandma. Uh, you know, there's a, there's such a thing called as abuelita faith. Mm -hmm. And so these, these values of God, of family, of sharing meals, of taking of one another. I mean, if this demographic is present equally in the church, think about the gifts it's going to provide for the rest of the church. Mm -hmm. Think about 
how it's going to strengthen the rest of the church. And again, going back to Luke and Acts, I think that's a lot of what Luke is saying. Hey, those outside are actually great faith models of the insiders. And so mm-hmm. the Samaritans, women, you know, Lydia, uh, um, the centurion. Uh, uh, and so all of these, you know, Acts 10, all these people on the outside end up being models of faith for the insiders. And so the insiders learn who they need to be as they are welcoming and allow themselves to be welcomed by the new things that God is doing with people of other cultures. And I think that is just a beautiful thing that is taking place. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think as we create and invest in these spaces, uh, our spiritual formation is going to be a great blessing for the church. Mm, that's amazing. What advice would you give to a person who wants to lead or start a Spanish ministry? I, I'm I'm going to guess that there's people listening like, man, this is exactly what I want to do. This is, you know, yeah. I, I think I could do it. I'm have, maybe haven't had the support or the vision up until now. What would you tell that person? Yeah, I, I think, um, to, you know, give me a call. <laughs> That's right. Let's have a conversation. Uh, I'm definitely available. That's definitely a passion. And there's other ministers in Spanish that would be available to, hey, here's our experience. Uh, Let me pass on this vision. Um, And and so I think, you know, this is all about relationships. So build a relationship with a Spanish-speaking ministry couple um, and start having that that conversation. I think that's a great way to start. That's great. If a person wanted to reach you, how could they get a hold of you? Uh, they can email me. Uh, that's, you know, probably the, the, the easiest way. Um, and again, you know, we all, we all know each other here in the church one way or another. So it's, it's quite easy to get my, my information. Okay, great. I'll go ahead. If it's okay, do you put your email in the show notes? Sure. Perfect. That'd be great. Thank you so much. Thank you, Rob. Really appreciate this time. Thanks for listening. Here's how you can help support the program. First, hit the subscribe button and send a link to your friends. Secondly, read and review one of my books, either How to Plant and Grow a Church or Courage, How to Make This Life Count. You can find both of them on amazon.com. Finally, support the Rob Skinner podcast with a gift. The link is in the show notes. Because my goal is to inspire you to live a no regrets life, to make this life count, and to multiply disciples, leaders, and churches. Have a great day and make this life count.